Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. Happy New Year. Based on some feedback from listeners, we tried something different for this episode. In mid-December 2021, four of us on the podcast team got together Three of us actually were together in person. Kelly had to be remote. Uh, And we each brought a topic that has been on our minds lately. And we discussed each of these topics. It was really pretty interesting and really pretty fun, Uh, especially with COVID where maybe we don't get a chance to actually get together and just chat the way we used to. Uh, I don't think we solved all the world's problems, but really some interesting conversations uh, that we hope you will find interesting as well. Uh, First, we have a sponsor this week. The Passive House Network is a 501c3 nonprofit that provides education to building professionals across the United States. They also share knowledge and collaborate with regional and international Passive House organizations. They were founded over 10 years ago and were formerly known as the North American Passive House Network, or NAFN, N-A-P-H-N. This past year, in 2021, NAFN simply became the Passive House Network, or PHN just to reinforce their global connections. Uh, On the trainings front, the Passive House Network still offers live trainings, but they also provide courses on demand. These can certainly be easier to access and more affordable. On-demand offerings include introductory courses, core professional certifications, and specialized advanced courses. All can be completed at your own pace. To find out more and to register for Passive House training, visit PassiveHouseNetwork.org PassiveHouseNetwork.org We'll have a link to them in the show notes. So this episode got a little out of hand. It ranged all over the place. Uh, We had several technical issues also, but that is what editing is for. Uh, Thanks, Dylan, for editing all this material. Uh, I think we got it down to a reasonable length. Uh, So the four of us chatting here were Kelly Westby, who wanted to talk about ventilation. Myself, who my topic was electrifying domestic water heating on a immediate and widespread basis. I have concerns about that. Dylan Martello talked about all electric commercial kitchens and Alex Mirabile talked about backup power or emergency power and especially carbon implications of backup power and emergency power. So let us know what you think. I hope you enjoy. is Kelly, Kelly Westby. Okay, let's just get started with ventilation. Let's warm up a little bit. Everybody loves to talk about it. I know. Should we, should we take a deep breath? All together. <sighs> so there's lots of different kinds of ventilation. So when we are working on maybe say, let's say newer construction, where we have opportunities to maybe do it right. What are things that we're seeing? Like, I think I've seen a wide range. Uh, Dylan, you're on the passive house side. You've seen a little bit of different kind of things. Rob on the uh, maybe more single family, smaller multifamily side, maybe you're seeing, seeing different things. What kind of issues are you finding today in buildings 
with ventilation that you're either disappointed that they haven't progressed in the last 10 years, for example, or that you think are really awesome? So I think one of the biggest challenges is ERVs and HRVs Mm. not being maintained. Filters not being cleaned, media not being cleaned, air intakes getting clogged with trash leaves, grass clippings, and the airflow goes to crap. And it's, in my mind, that's one of the biggest arguments against balanced ventilation, against ERVs and HRVs, is that if you don't maintain it pretty aggressively, you know, at least every at least every quarter, maybe maybe six months. But no, I really I think it needs at least quarterly attention, a lot of these systems, to even, you know, approach kind of the design ventilation flow rates. And if you're relying on that for indoor air quality and you don't do maintenance, that's that's one of my biggest concerns. Do you find that contractors provide the maintenance staff with the appropriate tools and guides on how to maintain these systems? Or is it more that they're just not listening to the guides? If it's the homeowners who are responsible for maintaining it, it's the homeowners. And and contractors don't necessarily understand the need for it either. Uh, in our office, we have four or five ERVs in our office in Connecticut. And I remember <laughs> once, you know, we have a maintenance contract with a mechanical contractor and we were digging into something was going wonky. So we were digging in to try to figure out what was going wrong with some of our HVAC stuff. And the contractor was there and pulled out, like the filter was destroyed. There were dead pigeons in the intake ducts. It was, you know, it was, it was a bad scene. Those were not getting maintained by contractors. They came quarterly to check on things, but they didn't check the ventilation system. Mm. So that's, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think there's failings all around. Yeah. I think that that's interesting, right? Because we talk about getting more fresh air in buildings. And um, I think like with COVID, everyone says, oh, just turn it up 100%. But turning it up 100% and running it through pigeon carcass is maybe not the freshest air that we want for our children and our communities, (laughs) for example. Is that too far? Maybe. I actually like the smell of pigeons. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I like to think that's a plug for ongoing commissioning, but you know, um, no, I think that's a good point, Rob. And it's, I was thinking actually more on the installation side, but you're absolutely right. Even if you get it a hundred percent right on the installation, and even if you turn it over, um, a hundred percent effectively, someone needs to be allocating the funds towards maintenance and then monitoring and making sure that it actually gets done in real life. And so there's a lot of steps where things could go wrong. It bothers me that we're still talking about duct leakage. Mm. This is a sensitive topic for me. <laughs> I'm sorry for bringing it up. Because <laughs> it's all we talk about. In Passive House, it's all you talk about? Duct yeah. leakage? Yeah. Maybe I'll explain why it's important from our perspective. So for Passive House, we have very stringent requirements for energy usage of the various systems in the building. Ventilation systems, one of them. And when we have too much duct leakage, what happens is the ventilator needs to now bring in so much more air to the building just to get the air to the actual registers because it's fighting all of that duct leakage where it's losing the air into the building. 
So what happens now is we're bringing in more air than maybe we accounted for in our energy model. And then if duct leakage is too high, we run into issues with compliance for passive house. So duct leakage is something that we spend a lot of time drilling into with the design teams and contractors as to what we can do to limit duct leakage and verify that the systems are, uh, you know, bringing in the amount of air that they should be. Um, but Kelly, I'd be interested to hear your hot take on duct leakage and and your perspective, because I'm sure it's also a good good perspective as well. So let's hear it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think we've come a long way, right? Because like we used to build buildings with ducts made out of drywall, which is like kind of confusing. And like, why did we do that? Um, and if you like go back to those buildings, there's just like chunks missing or like <laughs> drywall deteriorating or like, or it doesn't even like connect between the floors. It's kind of crazy in, in existing buildings, but it just knowing that new buildings built today are still having duct leakage issues. It's like really, I just, it gets me really upset. So I think it's like all of these little connections, right? Like, I think it's like the difference between the belief of how systems work and what happens in practice. So like you said, duct sealing, like you might have a, a, a component in your specifications that says seal all ductwork, which right. sounds really straightforward, right? And you have some sort of connection and you, like the guy comes through with a mastic, cause it's always a guy, maybe it's a gal, comes through with some mastic and, and seals that up. But if you're not like actually paying attention, like did they actually just drip the mastic on, but then the hole is still there or is like the hole filled, right? Or <laughs> like, what about when it has flanges and there's like the four corners and you have to like get in those little, so there's a sealant in between when it's connected, but you still have to go through with mastic and, and seal it around the edges. Or what if they use a tape, but it's like kind of cold and the tape peels off. So it's like, there's so much detail in the installation. So what I thought like 10 years ago, when everyone started talking about AeroSeal, I was like, this is the best thing since sliced bread for real. I don't know what other people think about it. Well, you thought that 10 years ago. Do you still think that? Okay, here's the thing. I, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. You use AeroSeal afterwards. You build the ductwork completely, and then you AeroSeal the entire system and seal it from within. Like, that is so cool. You don't have to worry about the guy, like, after lunch one day, throwing the mastic and then walking away, right? But instead of using the AeroSeal at the end, once all the branches are connected and that the trunk is in place and all the branches are connected and you have all of the um, components that could have holes in it installed, that's too complicated because they'd have to actually walk around the building. Instead, they prefer to use the AeroSeal before they install the walls, which means the only thing that they AeroSeal is the trunk of the ductwork, which doesn't actually have any leakage. Like the leakage is all in the branches. So right. now we have to, we actually have to regulate when they're doing the AeroSeal. It's not like, oh, okay, just do AeroSeal. And then we check the box and great, we'll move on. Now, okay, even if we say <laughs> this building has been AeroSealed, okay, but what parts of it have been AeroSealed? That, yeah, that's a very legitimate question. And that's one of the reasons we run into issues on our projects is a contractor says they did AeroSeal, but they only did it on 
60% of the ducts of which have the least amount of actual joints and things that would cause leakage. So I think that's a very legitimate thing yeah. to say is that we need to regulate when we're doing aero seal and what ductwork needs to be installed and what, what level that needs to be installed or else it's not, it's pointless. It's not doing anything. It's a waste of money. Yeah. Do you, Kelly and Dylan both, do you guys test the leakage of duct systems for ventilation? Like with, with the duct blaster, do you, is this part of scopes? If we are concerned that one, the aero seal is not being done sufficiently or it's not being done at all, we will test the ducts. Okay. So, but there's no passive house requirement to test the ducts. Not explicitly. Okay. There are some co-requisite requirements for heating and cooling systems, which is not really what we're talking about. We're talking about ventilation mainly, but there is some duct leakage requirements under the FIA standard. But there are ventilation requirements in passive house that say you have to get um, right the actual airflow that you need at the vent, From which the is registers. like yes. effectively impossible unless you seal the ductwork. Mm. Right. Right. Which is why at the end of projects, when people are moving in to their apartments or whatever, we're like wondering why we're not getting the airflow at the uh, outlet because we told, you know, because they told us they aerosealed and then, you know, we're finding out like uncovering the layers like an ogre buildings have layers. Like an ogre? <laughs> you know? Oh, I, yeah. I know that from Shrek. From Shrek. Yeah. <laughs> TM. Like an on, onion. Yeah. Uh, what was? Ogres are like onions. They I had a, um, there was a, I think it was a computer game or it was part of the Shrek DVD package where you could record yourself saying all of the lines from the Shrek movie <laughs> over the different characters. So I, I knew like every line, like when Donkey starts talking about parfaits and how much he loves parfaits. <laughs> I should have done that for this episode. That's how you know about duck sealing. Yeah, that's why. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Alex, thoughts on ventilation? I, well, I could pose a question and hit it, hit this curveball right back to you, Kelly. Yesterday, when we caught up, you mentioned simplifying, uh, simplifying everything yeah. <laughs> when it comes to ventilation. And you mentioned one of them, just arrow sealing correctly is a way of simplifying, in my opinion. What's another good example of simplifying, you know, the ventilation system to make sure that there's less O&M and, and commissioning involved throughout the, the project? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And um, I was thinking about a particular project that at one time was the largest passive house in the world or whatever. <laughs> Universe. Universe. <laughs> I think the aliens are building passive. That's just what I think. So... I, there was an idea around one way to reduce the energy consumption of a ventilation system is to only ventilate when the space is occupied or when you actually need it, right? But that takes mm. um, that takes at the minimum um, a variable speed fan and a adjustable damper at the air outlet, um, at least a two position damper or. On off. situation, some sort of yeah. on off or multi-position, right? Probably minimum, maximum. But to do that with a central ventilation system is pretty complex because each individual, um, say like the kitchen in 4F, the guy starts cooking and now the lady in 3E starts cooking and now we need to open those two dampers and ramp that up. 
And that seems straightforward, but then you get into actual practice, right? And you're like, okay, this damper is actually installed behind the kitchen hood and like you can't really access it. And who set that up and who actually made sure that the damper actually moves and who checked a hundred percent of this like 300 yeah. unit building, right? It gets complicated the more adjustments and moving parts you have throughout the system. <clears throat> so, Fair enough. so I think like, so making that was, you know, Swa's old adage, adage I think is like, consistent, low flow bathroom exhaust, for example, rather than on and off, maybe that's actually a really good way to go. So that's an, that's an example from the ventilation world. Kelly, I totally agree on the exhaust only, even in low, even in low rise and single family. I'm not an advocate for unbalanced exhaust only ventilation, but it sure is simpler. It's so much simpler. And it'll run with trivial maintenance for decades. But where are you getting the air from? <laughs> Your walls that you all now these, made airtight? <laughs> all, all these tough questions. Uh, that's that's right. that's it's the true. huge that's the huge catch. It's it's that's that is the biggest concern as to why I don't advocate for exhaust only. Certainly, right. if you have any combustion in mm. the building, you totally have to be worried about that this room aside where combustion gases are not a concern, <laughs> you know, and in multifamily is even bigger concern. Your neighbor smokes yeah. and you get the makeup air from your neighbor's apartment with all the smoke or they cook fish or it's, you know, and I think the, the reason chute. it's not the simple, like exhaust only is like simple in concept, but we do need to take it that one step forward. Right. It's, it's not simple in that we don't actually know where the makeup air is coming from. And like, maybe it's coming from the elevator hoist way. Um, maybe it's coming from your neighbor's apartment mm. who smokes. Um, in single family, it's probably a little bit more straightforward. At least you're not taking it from your neighbor's apartment, right? Yeah, right. It could be the garage, could be yeah. a moldy crawl space. You could have radon issues. There, there right, are yep. issues that should not be ignored. But anyways, going back to my first comment, you also, I don't think necessarily should ignore the maintenance issues with higher tech, right. you know, more complicated. A layer of systems. complexity adds a layer at each stage and that just needs to be accounted for. Maybe it's the right decision. Maybe it's the wrong decision, but we need to be realistic about what the um, long-term implications are for every layer of complexity that you add in the concept phase. Eyes open. All right. My topic has to do with electrification. The growing craze movement, mm, we'll, we'll go with movement, it's more politically correct, to electrify or decarbonize everything, including water heating. Uh, I got, it was like 20 years ago, I started in on a, an evaluation project of heat pump water heaters in Connecticut, where we installed 20 heat pump water heaters in single family homes in the basements. And some of them worked fine, but the, this product wasn't ready for prime time and it's off the market. But other products have replaced it. And these, these integrated tanks, it's like a 50-gallon or 80-gallon tank with a heat pump on top. So you have a compressor and an evaporator and, and blower on top. It draws heat, it draws air and heat from the basement, if you put it in the basement. And the heat pump moves that heat into the water tank. And it's totally a viable technology, and it can work really well in say, basements of single-family homes, even in cold climates. We've seen it work really, really well. In warmer climates, it's even better because it, like, it cools the space around it. It cools and dehumidifies your basement. 
which is great. In the winter, it also cools your basement, which isn't as great. And that's that's the issue. That's the issue that so many people don't understand is that if you put these heat pump water heaters, wherever you put these heat pump water heaters, it draws heat from the space around it, cools off the space around it to heat the water. You can't stick them in closets without ducting them. Uh, and people don't get that. I've seen many people put them in closets and they don't work at all and they rip them out and replace them with electric resistance heaters and they swear off heat pump water heaters forever. But now there's like, it, it's even a bigger challenge in multifamily buildings. Like you can't put these in apartments. There's no like, there's no big basement space, big mechanical room space in apartments, it's, or it's exceedingly rare that there is. So they're, they're fairly noisy. They blow cold air. They cool off the space. It's very tough to install them in apartments. Central systems where you have outdoor air, or you, you put the systems outside often, uses outdoor air, extracts heat from outdoor air to make the hot water. Once the temperature gets down into the single digits, which it certainly does in New England, they have very limited capacity or maybe no capacity, and certainly they have less efficiency. So it's, it's, it's hard to do it, but there's more and more demand for people to do it, requirement for people, for people to do it. I've heard of incentive programs in New York State that are kind of forbidding fossil fuels and to get the to get the high tier incentives you have to use heat pump water heaters you you can plug them into your model and the model looks great but in the real world it might perform like crap and it just really makes me nervous to see using heat pump air source heat pumps to heat domestic hot water in big buildings in cold climates is still an unproven technology but it's not stopping governments and programs from requiring it and it kind of freaks me out i think it could be a disaster we need a right brothers of domestic hot water <laughs> for central buildings <clears throat> dylan you have a couple projects that are pursuing this all all uh, going you know all electric heat pumps providing all the water heating right yeah yeah, exactly. So we have <clears throat> multiple projects that are, um, one of our projects um, is the uh, Pirelli building. And uh, it's a uh, old Marcel Borier building uh, from the 70s that uh, changed hands over the 30 to 40 years. Um, and now it's um, being uh, renovated to a hotel, all electric net zero hotel in New Haven, Connecticut. And that building uh, has, uh, I believe, 151 keys for the hotel. So it's a big building. And uh, they have all electric heat pump water heating specified and, and designed and actually installed now. Um, it's still in the commissioning phase and they're still wrapping up construction, but we are um, seeing that uh, this, to me, feels like the first project that's doing this at this type of scale in this type of climate. Um, and the, the client, uh, the developer on this project, which is Becker, uh, Becker and Becker, Bruce Becker particularly is, is very much, I would say, um, a sort of forward thinker and, and want to sort of emulate the Wright brothers in a way in terms of breaking down barriers. But I, I, I say that, um, facetiously and not so facetiously, because I think where I feel like we are at right now is, there is technology 
out there that um, we have data for and we have designs for, but who wants to be the first person at the front of the line to sort of mm. do it and go through that inevitable phase of, uh-oh, like what's going to happen? Are we going to have water? Now, to be clear, I mean, that project has backup heat as well for the Mescot water with electric resistance tanks, which aren't ideal from an energy standpoint, but at least are there for um, the means of providing additional capacity if needed. Um, so there's sort of that safety blanket, but I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, one, just not relying on fossil fuels to do it is one step, I would say. Um, and that's certainly, um, you know, a step that that specific project has taken and we're seeing some other projects take. So, sorry to interrupt, but you're saying that the not relying on fossil fuels, even going to resistance is a step in the right direction? Is that what you're... It's electrification, right? So I would say if we're all in agreement that we need to electrify sooner rather than later and get off fossil fuels, electric resistance is probably going to be that sort of safety blanket from a capacity standpoint, right? It's not necessarily safety blanket from a what if the power goes out standpoint. And that's maybe a different issue is that's where we talk about storage, energy storage, and mm -hmm. how do we how do we sort of um, address the issue of, well, what if we don't have electricity to the building, which isn't necessarily um, not a problem with fossil fuel systems because you still have pumps and things like that powering these systems. So it's not like it's a problem if the power goes out in a building with fossil fuels as your hot water. But I think relying only on electricity in a way is sort of a leap of faith for a lot of designers and developers that, um, you know, that's kind of why I sort of said, like, we sort of need a Wright Brothers to take that that leap of faith and, and go through those growing pains. Um, not, and, and this is something that I think growing, you know, the growing pains has been something that, developers and designers has gone have gone through on other projects and other design challenges so um this is not anything new conceptually to the building industry it's just this is the next thing and i wonder rob is your point about like <clears throat> it's great that there are pilot projects going on where developers are wright brothers and they're like moving the industry forward by testing things out. But at the same time, we're creating legislation that's saying that everybody should be ready to do that. Is that what you're getting at? Oh, yeah. I'm, and we have, I think we probably have a half a dozen projects in the company, at least, probably at least a half a dozen mm -hmm. projects of the company that are really being thoughtful about using new air-to-water heat right. pump technologies for, for, for water heating. But... Still, in our in our company, of all the projects we've worked on, we've haven't worked on any large multifamily buildings that have successfully done this. And that, uh, maybe there are others who have in in colder climates. I'm not I'm in not, warmer I'm climates not, or in colder climates in climates like ours. I'm not sure that there hmm. are. But that doesn't stop policy folks from m trying to mandate it, and that's what mm -hmm. that's mm. what I. They're, they're great technologies. I've just seen them misapplied so often. But to play as devil's advocate, I feel like many people would also say that the policy change is what spurs 
the right brother in a way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but you got to get off the right brother's example. They didn't have policy. <laughs> okay, but I think it's like, the, it's the, um, <laughs> like the catalytic converter, right? Comes out of requirements in terms of uh, car emissions, right? So mm-hmm. that's where we get the right. catalytic converter from because the regulation said, well, you have to fix it. I don't care what you're, you are able to do now. And then surprise, we figured it out, right? Same with like refrigerant regulation. Like, oh, uh, this is actually depleting our ozone. It turns out that's going to like really be a problem. You should fix it. And then refrigerant manufacturers said, oh, actually, yeah, we can create something different, right? And um, and they, you know, they waited until the regulation was required and not, not waited. I think I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious and tongue in cheek in, in this expression, but I think both are true in some ways, right? Like, I think one thing is true that we realized we needed to make buildings tighter and we did it all of a sudden. And then we had a bunch of people getting sick from our buildings and that's not good. Rob, it sounds like it's less about the technology and more about the installation and O&M that the issues you have with with these systems. Is that a true statement? Yes. And and I acknowledge Kelly and Dylan, I'm pretty conservative <laughs> on this. I'm not I'm I don't recommend stuff to developers to build and builders until I know it's going to work. Right. I want to be 100% sure yeah. that I know this is going to work. Hey, here's a brand new technology. Nobody's really got it working yet in their buildings. Everybody has to do it. Oh my God, that makes me cringe. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't doubt that these products work. You know, the integrated tank heat pump water heaters, I've seen them work great in a lot of applications. Yeah. I've seen them misapplied in a lot of applications. And I, you know, for all these new, bigger uh, air to water systems, I don't doubt what the cut sheets say. I don't doubt what the what the specs say. But when you actually install, I used to I used to believe everything. I used to believe everything I read. <laughs> well, they're also designed in a perfect environment. Right. That's you know right. They're yeah. rated in an ideal scenario. Right. And that's not realistic. Yeah. Exactly. So. And and I, I I've done too much testing and monitoring of systems actually in buildings. Yeah. To expect them to perform. <laughs> yeah, and let's exactly. be real. No one likes being the person that gets the angry phone call from the client saying, right. why the hell does this, right. you know, why is my tenants not have hot water? Remember that time you told me to install this thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think both are true. Like, I think we need to push people for them to go there. But I also think we have to be cautious about what we push too hard too fast. What if policymakers said this isn't the law in 2021 or 2022 but this is the law three years from now like what if that was sort of a um, approach to policy making as opposed to sort of making the law having it go to public comment and then being published immediately what if people what if policymakers made Mm -hmm. essentially law for three years in advance Obviously, no one can tell the future, so this isn't like a, like a perfect scenario, but at least it allows for that buffer period. But I think that's what happens. Yeah. A lot of the other decarbonization laws are, are similar yeah. to that approach, right? Right. BEPS, uh, LL97, they're taking that, you know, five-year, 20, you know, 
2030 yeah. goal approach where, hey, we're going to hit this point and we need to start doing something about it. Now, we're not going to fine you today, right. but it's time to start yeah. thinking about it and acting on it. The risk right. of that is that policymakers don't live forever. And the next uh, mm. generation. Put <laughs> <laughs> a little more. Yeah, that whoa, wasn't all right. Enough <laughs> for the happy moment of the podcast. Uh, the next administration might change the legislation if you don't make it quick enough. But I think that I think so there's like risks and 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 benefits to both. But I think to your point, uh, Alex, most of the legislation has some amount of time. So even that, you know, we were talking about the what people are calling the all electric uh, legislation in New York for new buildings. It's two years from now that it takes effect. Uh, local law 97, also New York centric. It's, um, you know, 2024 before it takes effect. So we had some warning. Right. But I do think sometimes, like, I think it's hard because we throw out these signals to the market, but then we leave some things open to question, interpretation, like, okay, this is where we're going with it. But, you know, the coefficients might change the, uh, like, Mm. we haven't specifically said what the requirements are in terms of how much your energy um, will convert to carbon emissions. And that's what we're regulating is the carbon emissions. So we haven't um, specifically stated what that factor is going to be for 2030. So there's a little bit of uncertainty. And I think every time the kinds of people that go into real estate, I think are like (laughs) the like long-term established, Mm -hmm. conservative, maybe. Um, And so if there's a little bit of uncertainty that they can say like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe it'll change. Maybe someone else will come in and like just blow this up or maybe like they'll change the emission standards or whatever. And so I'll just wait. I'll just wait it out. So I think they're both like there are risks to both. That's a good point. I wouldn't want to be that owner developer, (laughs) (laughs) but that is definitely a good point because we know they're out there. So what I'm getting is I, I should just settle down. I'm not worried quite so much <laughs> yeah. about this. I Have another I beer, hear, Rob. I hear where you're coming from. And I think like Rob, I think like also we need to be, we need to be one creating legislation to create momentum. But at the same time, we need to be funding and everybody needs to be closely watching these pilot projects. Like we all need to get together and say like, what is actually working? And it's, Right. We need to share stories. We need to say like, yeah. hey, and what's actually, not working. Yeah, yeah. When it's not working. Yep. I'm pretty sure. Now, I, I don't have a time machine, but I'm pretty sure that the Wright brothers did not fly their first prototype. Oh, just saying. But they eventually flew. OK. All right. Next. Dylan Martello. OK. All right, I have an activity. <laughs> a lot of curveballs today, huh, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I um, am very interested in the topic of commercial kitchens. So um, what I wanted to do was this fun little activity uh, using some calculations that we have and, and uh, energy performance predictions from Energy Star and using some assumptions. Um, so what I'm essentially doing here is I want to see how impactful the decision of what you want to eat and how much you want to eat could potentially sway the EUI of a building. 
Um, and this is a very crude, high-level analysis. This is not anything that you want to put in a white paper or, um, you know, say in a podcast, publish. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a heavy disclaimer on this. But at a minimum, at least you can see sort of the delta or the difference between what these sorts of decisions can make, not only as a consumer but also as a potential owner of a building that might be designing a kitchen and designing a menu. What I wanted to do was get your guys' menu items and do a very high-level calculation of um, the energy use intensity of a hypothetical restaurant. Now, this hypothetical restaurant has approximately, let's just say, around 80 seats in the restaurant. And then two times on average over the course of the day, we have someone sitting at every one of those seats. So uh, when you look at it from a sort of whole day basis, we have essentially 164 meals in this restaurant for dinner and about 112 meals for breakfast in this restaurant. Um, and what we're doing is we're calculating the pounds of food cooked for each scenario and running the uh, estimate for how much energy we think that the, the kitchen is using uh, over the course of the year. And then we're basically dividing that by the square foot of this building, which will just say roughly 80,000 square feet for this, this not restaurant, but for the, the whole, we're going to treat this as a hotel. So it's for the whole building. So let's start with the results because starting with the results are fun. All right. So Rob, your EUI for your building if everyone, if all of those 164 people for dinner ate like you, and oh. if every one of those 112 people ate like you for breakfast, um, the EUI for the commercial kitchen would be about 4.83 KBTUs per square foot per year, roughly. Well, that's what it would contribute to the whole building. That's exactly. What, no, that right, would right. contribute to the whole building. Okay. Yeah, so exactly. So let's just, just to sort of... Put some rough numbers out here. Let's just say this building is a very high-performing building. Um, and it's a hotel with a restaurant in it. Hotel with a restaurant in it. I'm going to say it's, you know, it's a moderately sized, let's just say, seven or eight-story hotel building. Um, so I would venture to guess, let's say the EUI for this building is in the 30 range. High performance, uh, very high performance uh, KB2 per square foot. So four, adding four sum to that. Yeah. It's pretty friggin' substantial. It's pretty big for the lowest EUI out of the group for the lowest EUI out of the group. Still significant. Now to be clear, I am assuming some standard assumptions in terms of dishwashing and, Mm -hmm. um, refrigeration and all that sort of stuff. So it's really, you know, there's other stuff going into this EUI, but I want to just sort of try to understand how much purely your decisions on what you ate and how much you ate impacts energy use in the building. So just keep that in mind. Out of, let's just say an EUI 30, we're adding an additional 4.83 to that. So our EUI for our building would be 34.83. All right. Next, we have Kelly coming in at 5.13 KBTU per square foot per year. So she's in the middle of the pack. Even, oh, wow. she Even with my ribs? <laughs> five course dinner. Five course she, dinner. She had by far the most. Yeah. But did wow. you did you include that my ribs need to be slow cooked for like four uh, hours? Or right. really good add point. Ten percent. Yeah. Factor to that's this. A really good point. Do you have a smoker or? <laughs> um. Because if not, I I'm not coming. The rib. Uh, I'd have to check. You'd have to I'd have to check with the cook. Okay. Okay. Just double check on that. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm guessing I was the highest. So Alex, <laughs> you were the highest. <laughs> Alex, not, you not came surprised. in. You came in. Any guesses at what your UI came in? At? Well, you said right about the middle. He was four. She was five. Let me guess the high six. No, you're actually. The, don't worry, you're not that high. Okay, thank God. Five point four one. All right. So. <laughs> You're all within a EUI con- contribution of 1.0 of each other, roughly. Okay. So but even if you starve yourself, just eating massaged kale all day, you're yes. ruining the world is basically well, what we're trying to do. I feel, I feel quinoa. Don't forget the quinoa. The quinoa. Protein. Is very high quinoa? protein grain. Yeah. Right. Sometimes I think, you know, I, should I become a vegetarian? It's less about my taste and more about the impact I'm having. And now I'm thinking less because it's a, that window is so small. Yeah, nothing to do well with the body and energy of the food itself. But Come one, on, one, one UI in the, uh, the grand scheme of things is still pretty large in um, in this context, right? Well, I mean, this is this is also if everyone ate like you. Mm. So, you know, do the Robs in the world counterbalance the Alexes in the world as it relates to EUI and energy? Usage from kitchens. What? What? Why was Alex so much more? Because right, I didn't what, exactly ke- order a lot. So Kelly so had way more. That's food. a great question. Which items set it off? So, it it has to do with how most of these items are cooked. So they're usually either cooked with uh, in a commercial kitchen, like a combination oven, which uses mm-hmm. um, electricity and steam together to, uh, or sorry, it uses the, the properties of convection and steam together to create food. And I, I think from, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not an expert here, we need to get the experts on, but I believe that um, there's a fairly even split between uh, energy consumption from the convection side to the steam side, but it, it can can vary uh, a bit. Um, so depending on what your menu option is, um, it can impact sort of how much needs mm-hmm. to be cooked in a certain way. Got it. You didn't ask how I like my steak, which is medium rare. I think my <laughs> number would come down a little oh, bit. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> that is a very good point. That's a yeah. good point. Yeah. I always eat my meat medium rare. So does that make me as good as the vegetarians? I'm not sure. Well, that, I mean, that I think this is all, there's so much to be learned about this and a topic. And I think I, like I said, I'm not an expert here, but I think it's interesting to think about how the energy usage can be impacted by decisions on what you eat and how much you eat. But so, so is yeah. this, is this, are these EUIs for a, uh, an all electric, very, Thoughtfully yeah. designed commercial exactly. kitchen. So yeah, so we're looking at here what an, a sort of all electric kitchen uh, would be consuming, um, and we're looking at this uh, through the lens of sort of a selection of very high efficiency or Energy Star rated commercial kitchen appliances. But you're saying EUI, energy use intensity, right? Yes. Per square foot. Yes. But you're using the square foot of the. Kitchen. Entire hotel. Entire of the, building. Oh, of yeah. the whole building. Yeah, so we're thinking of this as like a hotel with a restaurant in it. Right? So okay. if you had and just so- a restaurant, it'd be off the charts. Yes, exactly. Right. So we could also look at this if it was just a 5,000 square foot restaurant. Then it would be what? Multiply everything by Then it, you'd what, be 20? in the, yeah, exactly. You'd multiply everything by 20. So we'd be looking at, uh, you know, EUIs around 100 for this restaurant. So can you have a passive house restaurant? 
Well, these are the questions that uh, keep you up at night. Keep up at night, exactly. Uh, yeah. No, but I mean, your point about the different meals—it's there's not a big difference. There's not a huge difference. So that's. But there is something. a difference, and I think the other thing too is that you know, I mean, if we're talking about let's say running an energy model to show compliance for code or whatever it might be, like I'm, I'm sure we don't get into this level of detail in every project, but like if we're starting to sort of think about our energy consumption and how we can really bring it down, I think, um, you know, looking at these EUIs um, and, and sort of asking the question about the menu design are important to ask. And I think, you know, I didn't, give an option for French fries, right? I, I noticed there was nothing fried. I was just thinking, so no yeah. fry later right. in, this, in this kitchen. Right, right. Ah. Yeah. So that's the other thing is there's things that aren't on the menu that also could be contributing to this too. So uh, I think that'd be the follow-up to this analysis and probably the next podcast episode. But wait, but we were saying it's not a big difference, but Rob's thing was four and a half and mine was five and a half or something like that. Rob's was four and a half. Alex's was about... Five and a half, roughly. So it's like one over four and a half. That's almost it's 20 percent, 18 percent. Yeah, yeah, that's that's significant. It's significant. Okay. not yeah. nothing. Right. Yeah. And then again, this is with certain menu items not on there, like French fries and other things that would, uh, you know, potentially use more than that. I just um, feel like we're really hating on the French fries. And I No, I love French fries. They're great. Because okay. I. Settle down. Yeah, a lot of things are fried. I mean, there's definitely substitutes. I, I'm sure you can bake them, and but right, it's, it is interesting. Shut up, though. Alex. You can't bake French fries. <laughs> Here we go. I like a baked French fry. I was, I was expecting that. I do feel like it's an interesting layer, right? Because we talk about, um, you know, the I I don't know. We never talk about it as embodied carbon of food, but what, what do we call it? Just like the carbon. Carbon um, intensity of food. Carbon intensity of food. Of of preparing the food. This has well, nothing to do about right. growing, yeah. transporting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's like, a good disclaimer because we're forgetting about the whole part right. of you know when well, it arrives in the kitchen. A lot happens before that. Yeah. Does this include lighting the lighting the restaurant, Dylan? Does this include? So the EUI of five does not include lighting the restaurant, but the EUI of you know if we just 30, say okay. thirty yeah, or so would indeed. include okay. that. Yeah. Got it. Exactly. And in this theoretical example, when you present. You know, your your job is to make this an all electric building. You mm -hmm. know, your goal is net zero. When you present this to the owner who has to present this to the commercial chef that they're going to hire, how does that normally go over? That's a great question. I would say that the the the, the initial hesitancy is always, Oh, we don't have a gas fryer, we don't have gas appliances, we're screwed. Like right. what are we gonna do? That's kind of the industry standard for commercial kitchens. Totally, totally. Okay. Oftentimes, these sorts of spaces are not fit out when the building is built, right? They're fit out, let's say, after they get leased to the owners. Mm -hmm. And what ultimately happens is the owners that are building these buildings and the developers are going to make the decision that I need to put gas in this space because I'm not going to have as marketable of a space to potential restaurant tenants. So how do we have a discussion as building designers and, and energy consultants and, and people that just care about electrification and, and reducing our energy uh, usage and reducing fossil fuel usage. How do we have the discussion with owners that are fitting out, or sorry, that are providing a sort of core and shell space 
and convince them that they can make all electric marketable. And I think that's a real challenge. I mean, I think we start by having a chef who loves all electric kitchens on the podcast. There we go. And it's already been done, right, Kelly? Oh, yeah, we did that. (laughs) I mean, I think we have to advocate for the people who are talking about these things and who are trying different techniques and have found that it's actually kind of great. And like, oh, it's okay not to like overheat your staff and like put them in really toxic conditions. And like there are a bunch of co-benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is... When I ran through the menu items, this is an actual menu from an all-electric kitchen. None of you said, uh, you don't have what I want. Well, I'll gladly plug the Chris Galarza episode, which (laughs) Kelly did a little less than a year ago. He swears by induction cooking and has a lot of great reasons for it, uh, including some of the ones you won't think about um, as a consumer that Kelly just mentioned. Not only health, but comfort uh, definitely goes along with health. But if you're trained in, in induction cooking, which isn't terribly difficult, according to him, you can become just as good of a chef and, and deliver just as, as great, um, you know, of a menu Meals as... And a spread. Right. But, so, it, but it is, I mean, it, it takes some getting used to, I think. I, th- I, mean, I think so. You know, yeah. he, he's, he's yeah. a very well-trained commercial chef. He, he worked at a university. They, they kind of gave him the, every, everything he needed to do so. So that's right. That's the hard part. Yeah. And if we see more and more people with the goal of net zero, how do we get those things into the hands of the right people? And, you know, maybe there'll be a trickle down effect one day, but it'll definitely take some time. I, I like I think we should move on. I think we should move on. And I'm digging in my pocket for another card. Another well, we know who's paper. last. But <laughs> Alex, Alex Mirable is the only one who is left. All right. So my topic is backup power, emergency backup generation, and net zero. I am all for zero carbon at zero energy buildings. I think they are critical. However, as we figure out the pathway to getting there, I am worried about the gap in emergency generation power, which is critical for hospitals, campuses, um, agriculture, you name it, you know, the things that keep us alive. So how do we figure out, you know, and there's a couple options that are out there today. They're mostly fuel-based and and combustion-based. So that's what we're trying to get away from. But I I think there's a huge gap here and and worth talking about. And I wanted to kind of bring it up to you guys as the consultants working on the projects. Have you seen any attempts to trying to get to a, a better, you know, backup powered solution. In most cases, it's a diesel generator. Um, and the two options that I can think of as alternatives are obviously ba- battery backup, um, ideally tied to a PV system where they can be charged again. But even if you have a battery backup power bank that you've charged while the grid is on, and then if your power goes out, you have that for your home. But that's really not sustainable or feasible for uh, a high-rise building because you're going to need a huge number of batteries um, in the city. There's just not the storage to, to put that somewhere. So that's the other, that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, people are getting really creative. This is more at a smaller scale and particularly the agriculture scale is biofuel uh, and, and biomethane. 
that is being used as a backup power because that, you know, if you're close to the source, you can actually, there's cases of people <laughs> doing a, a DIY generator conversion uh, from their, their methane at their farm where they've run generators. In one case in Canada, a farmer, a third generation farmer has, is running a 500 kilowatt generator and he's actually selling it back to the grid. And I thought that was really impressive. This all started they from, doing it from the poop. And it's from methane. It's from the poop from his, his cows and oh, from right. the farm. 500 yeah. kilowatts? It's it completely, it's something I didn't expect to run into when I was researching this topic. I, I thought just enough to maybe power a couple of his appliances. But here he is, you know, a few years later, selling it back to the grid. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> I think there's options out there. Yeah. They're obviously pretty extreme, but maybe it, it speaks to the gap in, um, in the, that category of, of buildings. And I, I don't think it should be overlooked, you know, as we design net zero buildings. What are your thoughts? It's interesting that you mentioned that because um, even in the legislation that like we were talking earlier about different um cities and states around the country going towards some sort of all electric legislation mm -hmm. in New York city. Specifically, there are specific carve outs for emergency power hospitals okay. and commercial kitchens to kind of pull oh. the thread together. Wow. Uh, you mentioned that. Well done, Kelly. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Um, so, so there's carve outs are, do they include solutions? No, I mean, that's the point. The point is like, that's don't exactly the right question. Like, good job. <laughs> we don't have the answer. Yeah. And, um, and this, that goes to Rob's point, right? You know, they're, yeah. they're putting it in writing. They're, they're becoming mandated in some areas, but without a clear solution or a practical one it being involved. No, right. but so to be clear, Kelly, you're saying that emergency power does not have to meet right, all exactly. these requirements. Okay, so okay. that's sorry, an exception. Sorry, carve out meaning that's like they're exception. saying go all electric. They're mm. saying, oh, we figured out the domestic hot water thing, Rob. Okay, so not got that. it. <laughs> but uh, Dylan, you're right. Commercial kitchens are difficult, and Alex, you're right. Backup power, <laughs> hospitals, it's complicated. But get your I'm the only your one DHW, that's wrong. <laughs> get your DHW in a row. Is, is sort of what the legislation says. It doesn't actually. Um, yeah. Call so, but on the, I mean, on the emergency power, yeah. the first thing that comes to my mind is you really shouldn't have to right. use your generator much, if at all. Ideally, you know, maybe for a few hours every few years, you have to run these things if the grid is good, which it may or may not be. Which is a New York, New, uh, New York, which is a North American. Assumption. Uh, uh, I was just right. going to allude to that. And mm -hmm. well, I, I live in the Northeast. I, I'm not in the city, but I'm in the tri-state area and a little more of a rural, you know, outside suburban area. And we've been out of power for a week and a half, you know. Oh, at, we, oh yeah, absolutely. At, for sure. So, and this is at a single family example. There's retirement homes and hospitals that if they, if they really needed to go a week and a half then you, you get to the point where you're like, oh, we're we going to have enough fuel to do this. And you're talking still about one out of 52, right? If you're talking about one week a year. But if you look at, because this came up with LEED, and I don't, I don't know what mm. actually ended up happening, but um, with LEED India, um, 
backup power you like was used so often that they had hmm. to incorporate it into the oh, energy model. So that's what I meant by North American assumption is that yeah. in oh, other wow. places, actually the grid is much less stable. Like yes, Connecticut right. is maybe a little less stable than New York. Yeah. Um, New Jersey, I don't know, somewhere in between. Um, Sandy right. got us all, but like that's, you know, percentage points. Right. But in other countries where the grid is less stable, then um, you actually have a lot more. And when I looked into this topic, it was other countries that came up first yeah, that were getting really creative yeah. uh, and, you know, biofuel and, and methane came up as one of the examples where if, if people are farmers, they're, they're encouraging them to use that to run a, a combustion generator as their backup power. And kudos to them for making it work because that was at the time probably the only option they had. Do you think that's because uh, sort of the limitations of those geographical contexts sort of spurred that? Like, in other words, do people, do we find that, you know, those areas do this because they have to survive as opposed to having the luxuries of, Um, Yeah, I I would say those examples are a little more extreme, very rural, uh, very little grid reliability. Um, So definitely, but I, I... but it's the same thing as energy efficiency legislation or anything, right? Mm. Like if you look at energy efficiency legislation and you look at a U.S. map, you're going to see it along the coast where electricity costs are much, much higher. Right. In like the middle where electricity costs are much, much less, the energy efficiency game is different. There's a mm. very different. There's less um, incentive. Yeah. To, to do Because you're so, not. Yeah, that's right. a really good point. Yep. You double the payback when you double, or sorry, you have the payback when you double the cost of electricity or whatever. Right. It's not an exact science. Well, and, you know, as these hundred year storms happen more frequently, I almost wonder and think to myself, as we work on the grid and and work on getting to zero, are we planning infrastructure for backup power purposes? Should we actually plan on developing plants in more urban areas that are exclusively for providing backup power. You know, we have a, a natural gas pipeline infrastructure here in the Northeast that's a lot more substantial than it once was and probably more substantial than it needs to be for, you know, goals that are getting to to fully electric. Um, the infrastructure is still there. I mean, the well, infra- that's that's my point. Yeah. The, the infrastructure is there, and with, you know, these biofuels and biomethane, you know, take a capped landfill, and if you can store that biomethane, and, you know, it, I'm pretty sure you can use the existing natural gas pipelines, and th- those that are fortunate enough to be on, on a, a gas line can reap the benefits of that, and that could be a backup power example. So, Yeah, if you purify that. Yeah, right. that right. landfill gas, which yeah. is uses up a lot of the it energy. Does. I and think you get out the loss in transmission and inefficiency for sure. But this is an emergency example. Yep, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, right. right. And I think Rob, uh, it's funny because I think we mentioned this on the episode I did. Uh, I did with Lori Kerr. Mm. I we talked a little bit about uh, renewable natural gas or or biofuels, and I I did some research actually. Now this is like 10 years ago or whatever, but on, uh, but my, I did a poster on landfill gas to energy technology. Oh, <laughs> so cool. using, yeah, using landfill gas and comparing 
either if you like make hydrogen or you make um, syngas or you clean it up and um, feed a uh, combustion engine with methane or whatever. But it is very energy intensive um, to clean it, especially, I mean, if you're going to go to like hydrogen uh, and use it in a fuel cell or something, that's very uh, energy intensive. Um, But you do have to either clean it up very uh, a lot or change your engines or a little bit of both to run on the natural gas. But I think like, I I think to your point, we have to, we have to do both simultaneously. Like we have to innovate around batteries. We have to innovate around renewable natural gas. We have to innovate around, um, yeah. Backup power, like all at the same time. I don't know. Or maybe we should just, Dive headfirst into one thing. He pump water no, you, for example. I, I think I'll lean. The latter is a little more of scary, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> There's only I, one option. I agree. It should happen, you know, tangentially. They should be looking at these at the same time. There's um, a higher frequency of these events happening, and I, I just think it. The, my whole point is there's a huge gap in these examples that I'm like you know, looking to find are pretty extreme. So we don't yeah. want to have to resort to, you know, cleaning, you know, a, a biomethane, a landfill, turning it into biomethane and then piping that to homes when, when needed. I don't think that's a, that's a pretty extreme example, but. Um, but and, how can you use those around cases along the edges that right, maybe can't convert? Like there's going to be. Exactly. It's better than letting that methane just go into the ozone, you know, it's a, you should find yeah. a use for it. We might as well right. use our existing infrastructure and, and take advantage of it. Carbon capture. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did a little uh, math on generators. Okay. Oh. So if you, so uh, a diesel or gasoline generator, genset, if you can get 20, 25% efficiency, the emissions, the carbon emissions... Uh, about two pounds of CO2 per kilowatt hour generated or 2000 pounds, a ton of CO2 per megawatt hour. Whereas in Connecticut, three of us are in Connecticut. One of us is in New Jersey right now. Uh, the grid mix in Connecticut is like 540 pounds Mm. per megawatt hour. So it's about half. Well, a quarter. Well, it's 2000. Oh, so, 2000. So yeah. running a diesel or gasoline generator, if you can get 25% efficiency out of that, which is whole nother, a, a big, yeah. a big, a big if depending on loading and everything, it's four times, it's basically four times as much CO2, which I would argue if it's a fraction of a percent of runtime, right? Right, right. We have is bigger, it, we have bigger fish to fry. If yeah. it's thirty percent, goes back to the emergency a, example, right? Yeah. For the, I believe in the biofuel or biomethane example, you wouldn't. You know, it's not really feasible to use a fuel cell for that. It would, they can use a regular combustion generator that would, would be a diesel or a gasoline generator. So that's another thing to consider, but, meaning you would not need to refine it to get it quite as clean as right. you would if, if you were using it at a utility scale. And batteries is another thing I looked up. Like, and I, I didn't dig as deeply as I could have, but I found I found an interesting article which was which was more documenting a method to calculate embodied energy in lithium battery manufacturing. Oh, interesting. But I had a case study. I had a case study. This one plant in Germany that makes lithium batteries. Yeah. It was over a thousand. The embodied energy of a battery was over a thousand watt hours per watt hour of battery capacity. 
is like 1100 or something. And so that's pretty significant, it seems to me. And I, again, that's one, this is one case study for one factory. And it, Wait, a thousand a, watt hours that it can. So if you have a battery for every watt hour of energy storage capability in a lithium mm -hmm. battery, it's over a thousand watt hours of energy. Embodied or to embodied, put it. Embodied yeah. energy, cradle to gate to make that battery. What did you just say? Cradle to gate? Cradle to gate. What does that mean? Grave. <laughs> so when you, sh no, like when you ship it, cradle, oh. cradle, so cradle to cradle is the most kind of holistic mm. way right, right. to right. envision our resources. Cradle to gate is raw materials to getting it out the door, shipping it out the door. Mm. Okay. Before it ships to the site. Right. Okay. 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 I hadn't yeah. heard that before. Interesting. Cradle to gate. Okay. That seems like there's a lot of energy use to put into that battery. Is that what you were getting at? That is <laughs> kind switching. of my point. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> that feels like a lot. We don't want to bury the headline. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but it, the headline is I think that this is not, uh, we don't have a choice. Like we need this power and how do we get right. it? to where it needs to go, but do it in a way that doesn't kill the planet. It's sustainable. You know, it, it would be a shame if we had to take a, a big step backwards every time we had to power on a, a backup generator and resort back to fossil fuels. To your point, not not very often, you know, right. not more than a couple hours, not maybe a couple days America, right. a year, but some other places have to consider that. What are we, like, what are we going to focus on? Like, I, I've been the biggest pro biggest proponent internally well, I can't say biggest. I don't know. I've been a big proponent internally to see, but Winter Associates is like, we can't do everything. Like we have to like choose a couple things and do those things really, really well. Right. And I think that's your point about domestic hot water. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, yes, we need to electrify, but can we make sure that we have the right technology with the right installers in the right solutions to make sure that it actually works so we don't actually just electrify and then backtrack because that's actually the, way worse for the market. The thing I keep coming back to on that, Kelly, and I think about that a lot. It's like, oh, to electrify, to not electrify, what do we use for backup power? What, you know, how do we heat our water? The thing that always makes sense is to use less energy, make buildings more yeah. efficient, <laughs> use efficient <laughs> appliances, <laughs> low flow fixtures, like you know, dumb, just use. Dumb it's, stuff. it's not, it's not, dumb stuff it, it's it's there's a substantial amount of subtlety to it like when we talked mm -hmm. about ventilation one of your two topics oh, yeah. you're only supposed to bring one <laughs> <My 17 topics. laughs> you know <laughs> tightening you know making buildings airtight infiltration is a huge load it's a huge piece yeah. of energy budget yeah. and when you tighten it up now you have to ventilate right i mean yeah. it's, it's 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 not like a you know it's no no silver bullet it's not easy but Th right. That's kind of what I keep coming back to thinking about this, using less energy, just being smarter. It, it makes how you generate that hot water less important if you lose you use yeah. less. It makes how you generate that emergency power less relevant if you use much less. That is a great point. If you yep. all go vegetarian and just eat raw foods, uh -huh. commercial kitchens, okay. it's moot. Just use your teeth to massage the kale. <laughs> right. No, you make, you make a great point. You know, before you invest in renewable energy, you tighten up your envelope, 
focus on energy efficiency, it's a way better bang for your buck. Should we should closing should we thoughts? wrap? Wait, other well, Alex, closing thoughts? when we have you back on the podcast in five years, <laughs> what are we going to talk about then? I I think in in five years when when we're reconnecting as as a podcast team, we're going to be talking a lot less about. Hopefully, all right. Number kale one, salad. we'll be talking a lot less about kale salad. Not and, not not true. Oh yeah yeah. Maybe the the massage element. Hopefully that will be figured out by then. I think the backup power solution will not have been figured out. I think that's going to be an ongoing struggle for a while, but I hope that some of the, you know, more challenging and extreme examples that we mentioned today might have better solutions. Batteries in particular, the battery technologies, I think in five years will have come a long way. I think the the prices will go down, making it more efficient for people to have. And the other thing is energy efficiency will be less of a Oh, you know, if we have the money to do it, great. It it will be more of a a standard, you know, not only for new construction, but for existing construction, there'll be in, the incentives to to get people there and it will bring down the the loads to that are forcing the grid to you know, result in high electric rates and and uncertainty and and pricing and also whether you're going to get power or not in certain areas. You know, less so here, more so in other countries, but Hopefully some of the things we're talking about today, other, um, I don't like the word developing as much, but less affluent countries will be talking about. That's where I hope to be in five years. All right. Nice. We'll go around. I'm Rob Aldrich. Dylan Martello. Kelly Westby. And Alex Morabelli. And Heather Breslin is also on our podcast team in charge of our kind of marketing and communications department. Podcast at Swinter.com is where you can reach us eventually. I'm not sure exactly who that goes to, but podcast at Swinter.com. Swinter.com slash podcast is where you find all our past episodes, show notes for this episode. I have no idea what the show notes for this episode are going to look like at this point. My spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, that pie chart. Swinter.com, Stephen Winter Associates website. If you are looking for any positions, we had over 20 open positions on our website last time I checked. And we have a lot of fun, obviously, as evidenced. Yes. You're in. We didn't get hired to be podcast team. Notwithstanding. (laughs) But now we get paid for it. (laughs) It's a dramatic improvement. Great. So join us. Thank you very much. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks.